How will the world meet growing energy demand while reducing emissions? What technology, human capital, policy, and education is needed to making the energy transition a reality? What are the myths and hard truths about all forms of energy, our environment, and our economy? The Voices of Energy sets out to explore these questions with the people at the heart of making these changes a reality. We'll go from conversation to application by focusing on actionable strategies that will drive the world and our industry into a new era. I'm Katie Maynard, founder and CEO of Ally Energy, and this is the Voices of Energy. Amy Harder is one of the top national energy and climate change reporters in the country. She covers these issues in a regular column at Axios called Harder Line. In her column, Amy reports on trends and exclusive scoops while also distilling complex energy and climate issues in understandable formats that are relevant to people outside of the industry. She interviews some of the biggest CEOs in the energy industry. Previously, she covered the same issues for the Wall Street Journal based out of its Washington, D.C. Bureau, and before that at National Journal, also in D.C. She has appeared on PBS NewsHour, C-SPAN, Fox News, MSNBC, CBS, and NPR, among many other media outlets. Amy is originally from Washington State and received a BA in journalism with honors from Western Washington University. Welcome, Amy Harder. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to be with you. Well, we are so excited to have you on the Voices of Energy. And as you know, we love to interview folks like yourself. We are first going to start out with our icebreaker rapid fire round. So are you ready for this? I am ready. Excellent. Okay. Are you a morning or night person? I am definitely a morning person. I like to exercise in the morning. And uh, since I recently relocated to Seattle, Washington, a lot of meetings are very early in the morning. So uh, it is a good thing. I don't mind getting up too early. Awesome. Red or white wine? Definitely red wine. Excellent. If you could have dinner with any three people alive or dead, who would you pick and why? Well, that's a tough one. Is it going to be a dinner with all four of us at once? That would be that would be an interesting uh, dinner. I, I will we'll have to have a lot of red wine and maybe a couple of bottles of white wine. But if I was just thinking, you know, one-on-one dinners over the course of history, I'm just finishing up Melinda Gates's new book, Moment of Lift. Uh, so I would maybe pick her. I think she's you know a fascinating woman, and it's it's really great to see women leading on all sorts of important issues. And then, although this isn't really a person, anyone involved in the Chernobyl disaster, I one of the, the most amazing things I watched and read this past year was the Chernobyl book and uh, documentary series on HBO. And I just found that so incredibly well done. I could just listen to somebody talk about that disaster and the type of impact it had on the world and on Russia and Europe, uh, and including, of course, on the critical energy source of nuclear power. And then my third one, gosh, I also find World War II fascinating. So certainly wouldn't want to have dinner with Hitler, but somebody who, who fought him and one of the people on our side, whoever that might be, maybe Winston Churchill or, or someone else, because I find that time period so fascinating. Um, and, to, and to learn you know, what happened there, I think would be really interesting. Awesome. Well, I'm a big, big history buff too. So awesome answers. 
Okay. If you could buy an EV, what would it be and why? I don't have any specific model or company in mind, but something that is an SUV and a small SUV and has four wheel drive. You know, I'm really, as, as I said, I recently relocated to Seattle. I'm getting more into skiing and other things in the mountains. And, you know, one of the complaints I think about current electric vehicle models is that they're not really equipped for what the American consumer wants, um, which are, you know, bigger cars that can handle tougher roads. And so you're starting to see that change. So that's probably what I would get. Um, And you're seeing a lot of SUV models coming up now. I will say, though, that currently I don't have a vehicle at all. And so I really, that's probably the way I have my lowest carbon footprint and I just rent cars when I need them. So, but that's, that's something that I would get, something that's practical and useful all year round. Excellent. Well, I just took the plunge. I'm waiting patiently with bated breath. The car was supposed to get here a few days ago, but it's still on its way. So that's exciting. It is. It is. I've gone all electric and we've gone all renewable in the house too. So that'll be interesting for the new year. Okay. So let's get into your background. You know, we're so glad to have you. I wanted to talk a little bit about your background in media and more on the harder line and some of your perspectives on the energy transition. So, you know, why did you want to get into energy and more specifically media and and energy? Did one passion come before the other? Yes, uh, definitely. One did. And and that uh, was journalism that came first. I always loved learning about things. And so that's really what draws me to journalism is learning about anything and everything. And so that's what I majored in in college here in Washington State. And I actually initially had plans to become a legal journalist. So the plan was to uh, go you know, get an undergraduate degree in journalism, you know, get into mounds of debt going to law school and then go to an industry like journalism that doesn't exactly do a good job to pay off all that debt. So ultimately I decided I didn't want to do that and didn't go to law school. And then, you know, I moved out to Washington, D.C. and I fell into covering energy at a publication called National Journal, which is um, still around, but definitely different uh, than it was when I was there in 2008. And I just kind of fell into it. My editor put me on the beat and uh, I really fell in love with how complicated it is and how multifaceted it is. You know, I've been doing this beat for almost 12 years now and I can, and I'm not bored yet. (laughs) You know, I don't think I I will ever get bored because there's so many dimensions to it. There's the geopolitical side, there's the climate change and new technologies and oil and gas and all sorts of things. And so I just love how I learn everything. I can keep learning. And and that's really what draws me uh, to the beat. And uh, overarching all of that is that this is such an incredibly important topic, both the energy that we all depend on for our lives and also climate change, um, which is affecting all of us today and and will more so in the future. And it's those are two topics that I think are somewhat underappreciated in the broader world. And so I'm I'm happy to be covering something that I think deserves more attention. Well, I agree. And you and I share a passion. I went, I wanted to go to law school and do the same thing. And then I decided that I probably as a journalist should get out and get some experience. I went into the energy industry as a journalist and then left. So I love that you have an appreciation for telling this story and you do it in such a great way. So how did you get your current role at Axios? Yeah, well, I I joined Axios in April 2017, which was just a couple of months after it launched, 
we launched uh, the day that, or the website launched the day that Trump was inaugurated uh, that year in 2017. And, you know, I was at the Wall Street Journal before that, had been there for about three years. And, you know, whenever there's a new administration, there's always sort of a change of jobs around Washington, D.C. and sort of the media establishment. And then that proved the case to me. And although I'd never met uh, Jim Vandeheyer, Mike Allen, or Roy Schwartz, those are our three founders, they reached out to me and, and told me about this incredible, you know, endeavor they're about to undertake. And it just sounded really exciting to me. And I figured if I was going to do a startup with anybody in the media world, it's going to be those three guys who are just so incredibly smart on, on this topic. And I think I've been proved right many times over. Uh, it's incredible to reflect back upon, you know, when I started, you know, I went from an incredibly well-respected publication, the Wall Street Journal, you know, everybody, you know, finds that to be, you know, a very well-respected publication and it still is. And I went from that to, you know, this, this one room media company that nobody could pronounce. And it was a tough move. Um, but over the last almost four years that I've been there, I, you know, I've been able to experience so many other things that I couldn't have experienced at the Wall Street Journal. For example, we have an HBO show uh, that I've been able to sort of test my TV interviewing skills and, and things like that. And so I often tell people that I loved my time at the Wall Street Journal. It led to my job at Axios and every step in one's career always leads from the one before that. So I wouldn't have uh, been recruited to join Axios had I not been at the Wall Street Journal. And I wouldn't have been recruited to join the Wall Street Journal if I hadn't spent six years, which is a long time in journalism, six years at National Journal really perfecting the beat of energy and climate change. And so I've loved every place I've been. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all helping me to, to learn about this important topic. Yeah. And, you know, you've, you know, and, and kudos to Axios. You've created a, a niche, I think, you know, reporting on energy and the environment is is a challenge. As you said, the, the industry is not uh, good at telling its own story, but you frame it and deliver the news in a way that's digestible. We love the brevity and the bits because you you deliver that in such a it's such a compelling way. So, what was your goal when you started your column? And I think it's great that you were able to uh, to start something like the harder line, right? Do you have a favorite interview or story that maybe was fun to report on? Yeah, well, you know, the great thing about being at Axios is they give me a lot of flexibility to report on you know, pretty much whatever I want to write about. They know that I'll choose to write about smart and important things. I think one story I really enjoyed was in coordination with an HBO segment. So at Axios, we like to sort of, you know, push our story out onto various different media, very different types of platforms, right? So we have HBO and we have our newsletter and we have my column. And so this particular one was about offshore wind and, we went, we, we did more traveling than I perhaps uh, would have for a normal column. We went to, I interviewed a senator on Capitol Hill. Then we went to Atlantic City, uh, New Jersey, where I interviewed the CEO, um, the U.S. CEO of Orsted. Uh, Orsted is the, the, the Danish uh, offshore windmaker, is the largest in the world. And I was sitting there, you know, overlooking the ocean and uh, overlooking the Atlantic Ocean and interviewing uh, the CEO. And it was just so fascinating. And then the most um, interesting part came, of course, when we w- went to the only offshore wind farm in the U.S. currently, which was off the coast of Rhode Island. And it was just such a fascinating story to be able to see things 
actually see things in real life, I think is so important. One sort of funny side note is the camera people on, on our boat uh, unfortunately made the decision not to take Dremamine. And it was quite uh, a lot of waves that day. And so we had to film in about 30 second increments because the camera people were so sick to their stomach. When you look through the hole of a camera and you're on a boat that's very wavy, it makes nausea even worse. So that was sort of a fun experience. Um, and of course, I learned so much. And I think offshore wind is poised to really grow under President Biden. Uh, the, the bill Congress uh, recently passed has additional tax credits for offshore wind, and Biden is, is going to support it a lot. I think the intersection of oil, the oil industry and offshore wind is really interesting. Orsted used to be uh, an oil company. So I just think that's all um, so interesting. And I really look forward to, you know, once it's uh, safer to really get out there and travel more with the pandemic lessons, I, I really look forward to getting on the ground and talking to people and companies and state officials and government officials to really see the policies that are being put in place today and the technologies that are being created and really seeing those things in action. Well, I don't blame you, Amy. One of my favorite assignments was living offshore and walking literally underneath the earth in a tension leg platform. And I'll never forget being the first person to land on the rig. And there was another woman who was there and she gave me this jar of pickle juice. And I said, what is this? And she said, this is better than Dramamine. And I looked at her like she was nuts, but she was absolutely right. So every time I went offshore, I drank pickle juice, swear to God, it was the, I guess the sodium, but that's what kept me from getting seasick. So oh, no, um, I'll have to bring that next time. No, I cannot agree with you more. I think that the public needs to understand and see and, and touch it and feel what energy looks like. And so it's great that you um, had the opportunity to, you know, to do that and to, um, to take a camera crew out and really understand and um, touch, you know, and create the experience for them. That sounds fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about the energy transition. So I'm curious, you know, now with the pandemic, obviously in the last, oh goodness, almost a year now, you know, I'm curious to get your perspective on the role social media is playing in the energy narrative online. Yeah, you know, social media, primarily through, I would say, Twitter and Facebook, are really playing, to some audiences, an incredibly outsized role. You know, and I say some audiences because although Twitter can seem like it's the beginning and the end of the world, it's really not. I think it's less than 20% or around 20% of the U.S. population is on Twitter. And so it's really a very small subset of, of the conversation, however, a pretty influential one. So you certainly can't ignore it. I think it really is a place where progressive voices have really uh, succeeded in getting their perspective on issues out, which have traditionally, and then in the last few months, less so, but complemented their uh, effective, you know, in-person protests of energy facilities and things like that. It's a supplement, though. Ultimately, it cannot be the only thing. And I think once COVID lessens, you'll see, you know, you'll see that sort of activism pick back up again. I, as a reporter, I certainly watch Twitter every single day that I'm working. I try to post on Facebook. Uh, I have a professional Facebook page as a journalist. I, I don't use Facebook as much. Uh, that might be a 2021 resolution to use Facebook more as a journalist. But when, when I get caught up in Twitter conversations, I really remind myself that that is not where most of my energy needs to go because 
it's reaching the same people over and over again. And my goal is to constantly reach new people uh, with my writing. And so I, I don't obsess over, you know, the latest person who doesn't like my story, you know, unless they have an actual, you know, correction to point out, I, I tend to, to let that stuff slide off. me. Yeah. Well, you know, so LinkedIn recently, you know, they named their top voices uh, this year. And we noted the fact that they missed out energy and they missed out environment. So we decided to uh, take the opportunity to name some top voices in energy. And one of the categories we mentioned were executives because we feel like executives play a role in that. What role do you believe executives play in the energy narrative as we look to this transition? I think executives are playing a different role today than they did, you know, a decade ago. When I say executives, I mean, obviously it depends, right? Are you talking about renewable energy executives? Are you talking about oil and gas executives or coal? But generally speaking, I think it's becoming really hard for any corporate executive, including, you know, the most conservative coal companies out there to really deny that climate change isn't a big problem, both for humanity and for their bottom lines. And so you're really seeing that across the board. And so I think one potential development that I'll be watching under a Biden administration is seeing how all of these executives who have been saying pretty positive things about supporting action on climate change uh, over the last four years, while Trump has been in the White House, I'll be interested to see to what degree this rhetoric uh, softens or changes or hardens when there's actually the prospect of climate policy on the table in Washington, D.C. Now, I don't think it's going to be anything sweeping like the Green New Deal or uh, you know, a carbon tax, but nonetheless, there's going to be a lot of federal action coming out of D.C. about climate climate change from all, all uh, corners of the federal government. And I think it'll be interesting to see if these executives really embrace that change or if uh, executives come at it from a more antagonistic and critical way. And I think, you know, there's probably going to be a bit of both. So I'm curious. So ESG, I just read a, a headline the other day that ExxonMobil has a new activist uh, pressure, the church. What is your view on uh, shareholder activism, and do we see increase in that in 2021 and forward? What is your thought on that as we take on a new administration and as we get ourselves uh, into this new administration and out of the pandemic? One of my columns for Axios in 2017 was, the headline was, uh, Wall Street is starting to care about climate change. And so I would, that was the year that you know, the corporate investment firms, BlackRock and others, for the first time said it backed. BlackRock and others, for the first time, said that they, companies like Exxon and Occidental were not considering climate change enough. So they actually supported some of these shareholder resolutions enough that it really tipped the scales to push these companies to make some change. And so I, I mentioned this because 2017, to me, was a really turning point. It was the beginning of Wall Street caring. And now you're seeing, you know, almost four years later, that really mature. You have uh, Occidental has, yeah, I think might be the one of the one of the only U.S. oil and gas majors to have sort of a 2050 uh, climate change goal. Uh, you're really seeing a lot uh, change over the last four years. And I think the investor pressure, and by investor pressure, I mean, 
you know, you, you have the activist groups that are out there pressuring shareholders from the outside. Then you have the shareholders themselves. Then you have people like Bill McKibben, the, the, the big name environmentalist, trying to get people to divest. All of this amounts to me as investment pressure. And so I think this has been a critical reason why, despite the U.S. federal government not acting on climate change over the last four years, I think this is a critical reason why you've continued to see corporations act is because they've been facing it from investors. I think that will only continue under Biden. But I think the focus for a lot of people, including the media, will be to shift to focus on what is happening proactively uh, at the federal government. And of course, there's there's an uh, interplay there. The S- Securities and Exchange Commission may pursue some, you know, greenhouse gas disclosure requirement, which was in the works in the waning year and months of the Obama administration. I anticipate the SEC to play a role under Biden on climate change, and so you'll see. You'll see there, you know, BlackRock has been in a relatively easy position the past four years because it hasn't had a government breathing down its neck. Now, now it might. And so we'll see how, you know, firms like BlackRock handle that type of pressure. So I'm curious your thoughts on this one. So, you know, equity and environment, are these political things? Are these humanity things? Are these things that matter to everyone? What's your thought on that? The need for diversity and the need for decarbonization, is this this the big ticket to the next big thing for humanity? I think it's critical to incorporate concerns of equity and diversity and inclusion into addressing climate change and shifting to cleaner energy technologies. You know, just to sort of step back a bit, I mean, I think the entire world, particularly the U.S., but really the whole world has been grappling with this problem more acutely than ever, uh, ever since George Floyd's, you know, tragic uh, killing by police earlier this year. And I think, you know, and unfortunately, it took a tragic death like that to really focus attention, but it has been bubbling in the background, you know, for for centuries, essentially, and people of color know that more than most people because they experience it. And so, you know, it infiltrates all sorts of topics. And energy and climate change is just one. Um, at Axios, we have a series called Hard Truths, where we're systematically taking a look at all different aspects of society and the way equity and systemic racism fits into that. And so eventually, I hope we'll cover energy and climate change because I've actually already have a whole list of uh, story ideas I hope to uh, capitalize on if and when that happens. But it's, it's just so incredibly important. And just the last thing on this, because you know, we could do a whole podcast on this topic, I think it's sort of a, a two-sided problem when it comes to energy and climate change. One side is one that I've actually covered more. Earlier this year, earlier in 2020, I spoke with three civil rights leaders, um, Reverend Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, and then Mark Morial, who has the National Urban League. And I spoke with all of them about their concern that shifting away from natural gas too quickly in certain parts of the country could uh, negatively and disproportionately affect people of color and lower income communities because they pay a bigger portion of their paycheck to energy. And so, you know, that was an early glimpse of the types of stories that I think are going to be ever more important as the entire world shifts to cleaner energy technologies that in some cases are going to be more expensive. And if that concern is not addressed, then I think it will be much harder to get to cleaner sources. So even if, you know, your main goal is to address climate change, you'll, you still want to concern and address the equity concern, because I think 
you won't be able to get there if you don't incorporate that. But the other side of this problem, which is just as important, and in some cases more important, is that polluting facilities, whether it's a natural gas facility or a refinery or a, a coal plant, those have typically been placed in communities of color and lower income communities. And so uh, these people are facing the brunt of environmental pollution at the same time as they're paying a disproportionate amount in their paycheck on energy. And so it's this really, this really evil double-sided problem that these, the, these communities face. And so I think it's incredibly important and something that I've touched on a bit at Axios and that I really hope to cover more in the coming months and years. Great. So what are your thoughts on the new energy secretary appointment of former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm? I think Granholm uh, really did something that can be difficult in this very polarized environment. She got accolades from across the political and progressive and conservative spectrum. I think the auto industry has worked with her a lot and knows her. And so they have a lot of respect for her. And that's going to be critical because transportation emissions have become America's biggest share of greenhouse gas emissions. And so that'll, that's going to be, from a climate perspective, a really big focus of the Biden administration in terms of what he will be focusing on. I also think Granholm represents, you know, the type of diverse, and by diverse, I mean, you know, certainly it's a very diverse cabinet from a, you know, from a race and and ethnic perspective, but also from, you know, experience and whether or not there's experience in the Biden or in the Obama administration. And as an energy and climate reporter, the energy department is just one of three or four really key agencies. And so the other ones I think are also fitting into that as well. Michael Regan, a state official from North Carolina, is expected to head the EPA. Of course, this is all assuming they get uh, confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And then Representative Deb Holland, she of New Mexico, if confirmed, she'll be the first Native American to run the Interior Department. And so, you know, I think I think Biden has achieved what he wanted to achieve. And now I think it'll be interesting to see which ones get opposed in the U.S. Senate and, you know, and how these people try to act on climate change in every way they can, given the likelihood that big policy won't be too likely out of Congress. And then my last question, what's the one thing we need in order to make new energy a reality? Well, that answer has not been solved yet. If it was, I think there would be a lot fewer reporters and other people out there trying to trying to cover this issue. I think, you know, one question that I often ask people about any given technology, whether it's, you know, carbon capture or advanced nuclear power, I ask if they think it's a, a technological problem, a political problem, or an economic problem. And so that's sort of the three lens I look at this problem in. And, you know, I think I'm doing something that annoys me when I ask people questions, which is not answering it very succinctly, but that's because this is a really difficult answer that has multifaceted answers. So I think it's, you know, I think the politics are moving to support more clean energy technologies. I think you need government policy if you want to make a big change in terms of the energy that we use. So that's moving, but still not there. I think the economics in some respects, like wind and solar, certainly um, have really changed the world in so many ways over the last decade. So that's on the, on, the, on the right path if you want to increase wind and solar a lot. And then the last one is technological. And I think there's still a lot of pro- um, challenges out there, whether it's making green hydrogen from renewable energy or 
making a sustainable aviation fuel so we can fly around the world and uh, do it without increasing emissions. Um, so I think, you know, we're making progress in, in some areas and not so much as others. And so that's how I look at my job. Um, I look at these three buckets and, and see which ones need more attention. Um, and as a reporter, I, I don't come at it from an advocate perspective. I come at it from, okay, what's the challenge and what's holding it up? And why is it being held up? Sometimes it might be a good reason and sometimes it might not be. And so, you know, those are the three lens that I would look at it. And I would say from a political and economic and technological lens, there's been progress and movement, but there's still a lot of movement that needs to occur. Absolutely. Amy Harder with Axios. Thank you so much for joining us with the Voices of Energy. You're welcome. Thank you.